Well, hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the My Love of Golf podcast. Thanks for joining us wherever you are around the world. Really do appreciate you tuning in, taking time out of your day to listen to us talk about how we love golf, why we love golf, and more importantly, to people who also love their golf. And today I have a very special guest. It's Adam Jefferson, who is the principal partner in the brand Mulligans. Don't know what the brand Mulligans is all about? Well, tune in because you're about to find out. But let me say, if you love a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of history, if you love all of uh, the things that were good back in your junior golf days like I do and seeing them reclaimed and restored to their pristine original condition, do you like your old putters that uh, maybe have lost their luster and uh, the craftsmanship that it takes to bring that back to life? Well, you're going to love this episode and more importantly, you're going to love what Adam Jefferson has created at Mulligans. I know I have. I've already got one set of wedges uh, stamped with my favorite Irish golf courses. He's got another set down there, as you'll learn. So um, tune in, relax, enjoy this episode with Adam Jefferson from Mulligans Clubmakers. Thanks for tuning in. Adam Jefferson, welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. How are you, mate? You well? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Ross. Thanks mate. for having me. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure, mate. And it's been a labor of love for you to get to the point where we're standing in your very own uh, store, shop. I don't know. What do you, what, how do you refer to? I think it's a workshop. Workshop. Yeah, it's a living, breathing workshop at the moment. Mm-hmm. A little bit of art gallery in the front, mm-hmm. a little bit of performance upstairs, but it's mostly just for the workshop. Mate, I've, I've been, you know, watching the uh, progression of you moving into this premises here. We're in Armadale in Melbourne. Now, Armadale in Melbourne, just geographically, it's very, how would you describe Armadale? It's a nice suburb. It's, it's, it's old Melbourne. Old it's Melbourne. very vintage Melbourne, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of old families. Lots of old buildings, lots of heritage about the area. I mean, this is a 1890 building that we're in now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of buildings up and down the street that are the same sort of heritage. So it's a real old part of town. So in the context of what you're doing here. Perfect, isn't it? Perfectly located. Yeah. Perfectly located. There's a very nice symbiotic relationship to the location and what you're doing. It's, it's what you're doing that's brought me here today. You know, I've walked in off the street there uh, with a handful of clubs <laughs> of mine that uh, I'm going to put in your capable hands. It's not the first time that I've put golf clubs of mine in your capable hands, but, you know, it's the reason why I guess we found each other that has led us here to this, doing this podcast. And as I said before, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story of Mulligan's Club Makers. And, you know, the reason why I bought my clubs in is because I've got a set of wedges. Yeah. And you're going to do what to them? Or we're going to customise them. I'm assuming they need refinishing and rescoring, mm-hmm. and then uh, some personalisation, custom stamps, custom yeah. paint fill. Yeah, and yeah, you're going to leave me with a set of wedges that, whether I use them for, for me, my, whether I use them or not is irrelevant. But the fact that you know I've turned something that has some history, uh, that is part of the evolution of, of club making, and I'm going to put my own stamp on it. For me, that's really important. Yeah, and they're cool. They can live with you forever, right? Display and, pieces, if nothing else. And we're going to have a conversation of, of what I'm going to customise them with. And, and at the end of that, when you do the process, and we might follow the journey. You know, I think you might share some photos with yeah, me no and problem. I'll be able to share with the listeners the journey of you, know, you customising these wedges. You have done a set of wedges for me before and that was probably why I just wanted to get another set and get them underway as well. Uh, also a putter. I've got a putter here that yeah, we might put some uh, tweaks around. Cool. But 
back to the evolution of Mulligan's Clubmakers, we've been talking about this for a while, you know, and when we first met, I think, uh, you know, you were working in retail, I was obviously in retail, and then, then, then you started, so then someone in the world of Instagram started producing these wonderful bespoke customized pieces. And then of course, there's someone interested in that space. You know, you find out a little bit more, you have a look, you follow the account and all of a sudden I find it's, it's you. It's Adam that, you know, we used to talk to in a retail sense and uh, really following his passion. Mate, this passion is deep. Yeah. We're standing here in front of, in your new workshop in the back of the premises here in Armidale. And I've got, a set of mirrors, a set of, you know, I've got a set of golf clubs here that when I was 15 years old, you know, I coveted, you know, the Ram, Rams. Golden Ram tour grinds, you know, John Barrett was his name. He had a set of Golden Ram tour grinds and I just wanted to be, uh, play as well as John Barrett and have a set of Ram tour grinds. I never had the Ram tour grinds, but here we are. I've got a set right here in front, which you're in the process of finishing for probably someone that's probably my vintage, maybe not, I don't know, yeah. refinishing them. This passion to do this, started somewhere take us back to where the passion and the fire was ignited for adam jefferson that led us here to mulligan's club makers i reckon that it probably started like i reckon it came as soon as i started playing golf i think that i was just a question asker so as soon as i started hitting balls as soon as i started to get really into it playing every day in the summer i really wanted to know how my equipment worked and I could just dissect it a little bit. And then once you get started, it's just a snowball. You know, you start pulling stuff apart. When, when was that? So when did the golf journey begin? How old were you? So I was 15 when I started playing properly. Mm-hmm. I've got really vivid memories of watching Jeff Ogilvy pinch his US Open, mm-hmm. 2006. I was 15. And then I reckon that summer up was the, that was the turning point for me. I went out and played every day. And then we were really lucky because I, you know, he, he kept winning and Scotty was still on tour. There was enough guys to inspire me. Mm-hmm. And then once I, you know, once the seed was planted golf-wise, I couldn't stop playing and getting better and trying to improve. And then, so, you know, you've got to the elite level, you know, you're a scratch golfer and, uh, you know, playing around the sand belt. What did the journey look like then? You know, we've got to go to work or we've got to get higher education. Yeah. We've got oh, to go to school. Funny. Yeah, what, what happened? Like there's a bit I, of a story there. I think, I, think I applied journey. for several jobs at yeah. golf retailers. Mm-hmm. It's all to no effect. Apparently as a young man, I was maybe a little bit enthusiastic for this kind of stuff or just not fitting. But eventually I was able to land one of those roles. Mm-hmm. So once I got in the door of a golf retailer, I think that just spurned on even more. Mm-hmm. And then I was just, I was doing all the pulling apart work and all the refinishing and stuff that I could do in house. Was, so that, was that after the, the journey to, you know, the higher education, the, the college golf in the States, you know? No, I say before. That was so before. Talking, so, yeah. okay. So this is like in the interim between going to the States. Yeah. yeah okay. I started working in golf uh, 2011. And I've got uh, the scholarship to A&M International in 2014. So there was three years there where I was working retail. Mm-hmm. And I weighed up you know, the PGA traineeship and I thought, what's my career path in golf? I really want to be involved in this game and somehow. But the, the college experience, I think, I just knew that would be something that I needed or something that would help on mm-hmm. the journey. And it certainly did. I mean, traveling internationally is, is pretty sensational for making immature men somewhat of a more grown up <laughs> so that certainly helped a little bit there's, and then, a, there's a life lesson for any young young listener get out yeah. there and uh, experience some and of the world chase it. Yeah. yeah for sure because I, I didn't i don't think i ever really came back right i mean you go over there and you i hit balls thousand balls a week and you had to work on i was pulling clubs apart on the stove 
you know, in the apart in the dorm room, just Love trying it. to work on tweaking stuff. I was bending clubs in door jams and tweaking stuff, and uh, that sort of experience just really rounded off everything that I'd done for the previous few years in retail. Did you ever have any? Uh, yeah, I'm getting flashbacks of, I think working on a stove. I think I might be tried to to boil some water to create some steam to iron some a shirt. Yeah, ended up burning the shirt. Did you ever have any accidents to buy? No, you know, so the funny, thing is, on the funny stove? thing is, induction stove. Yes. So it's not like you can just hold it over the flame. Everything mm. we were doing, you have to like lie the club head on the stove directly. <laughs> try not to damage the chrome work. Try not to burn a ferrule because I mean we were all poly, poor college students. So everything we're doing, and then we didn't have a grip clamp in the uh, dorm room. So if someone was having a, a breakdown and we're changing something, it was all about just someone, can you come in here and hold the shaft for me while I'm trying to get this grip on? <laughs> were, you, were you the go-to guy? Yeah, I think yeah. I was. Um, not, not to be self-indulgent, but I, you know, I was probably more into it than mm. most good players. I think that's, I, I knew all along that I was more into this part of it than other good players. Yeah. And they were probably better than me at golf. So it was pretty logical for me to keep steering into the golf club space. So did that retail experience before your you know, higher education journey, did that expose you to you know, the basics of club repair? And, and the yeah, I'd say so. I had um, a really good old PGA pro yeah. that I could just sort of work my way under his wing, uh, Leith Wassell with his name. Mm-hmm. And he was just sensational for my sort of first foray into club making. And he taught me a lot about what you could do from a you know, general club making sense. And then I met Corey LaJosi just before I went to college mm-hmm. and he sort of rounded out the rest of that process because not a club maker, but a club maker, mm. as in that, that just turned into the refinishing, how to work with steel, how to drill, how to stamp, how to do all those things. I've so, heard you talk very passionately about your relationship with Corey LaJosi and, you know, if you know your golf clubs and golf club manufacturing, you know, you know Corey LaJosi and, and what he brings to the Australian golf landscape um probably Corey's probably uh, you know i don't know Corey. i've never met him you've obviously worked with him but how would you describe Corey's influence on the golf landscape the golf club landscape and then you know a little bit more about how he influenced you and, and some more of that direction that he set for you yeah i think i'd probably describe it as essential yeah. right because we've got a pretty well-made retail space and all of the suppliers come from overseas so there's not a lot of australian you know, owned brands. Mm-hmm. So to have someone in our state that can make something from scratch for you, mm-hmm. that super appealed to me straight away. And to have an option like that, that exists in the sand belt, especially, I mean, it just makes our state, Melbourne, just so much more well-rounded as a product. So you've spent all that time out there in Corey's Bayswater engineering facility, you know, learning and watching him. 10, year, 10 years an apprentice. 10 years right. an apprentice. It's a great, it's a fair <laughs> apprenticeship and a great stint. And, and, and Corey's still, you know, you, you're still involved. Yeah, yeah with we Corey, still work you know, really still close work together. Close together. Yeah. Um, you know, but he's, you know, the reality was, you know, he's got the engineering space out there and it's very much workshop and you wanted to mm. create this retail vision and expose what you do and, and what you've learned through him to more of the mass market in a, in albeit still a niche environment like we described here in Armadale in this beautiful Victorian. I think that, it's, that's cart before the horse a little bit, right. I reckon, because COVID happens yes, and that's when we were already doing a lot of refinishing and stuff like that, but I decided, oh, look, we'll do this Instagram thing. We'll give it a go. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it'll get some traction. Mm-hmm. And that's where things really took off. And I suppose 
working in retail and living abroad, I probably didn't understand that there was any big market for what I was into in golf. I always felt like I was a bit of a, a leper. I was a bit unique in the space. No one was really that interested in what I wanted to do golf-wise. Mm -hmm. So to have that affirmation from Instagram just meant, oh, well, maybe I was right about we could have a shop. Mm -hmm. People might actually come to that shop. Like it doesn't have to be like every other shop. We can make our own space and we can make it whatever we want to be. Yeah. And I, once you have that, you can just keep going, right? That just goes. Well, as I say, it was, it's been awesome just to you know, walk in and set up and see the vision come to reality. And, and we've spoken about this a long time ago. You know, we, we, we've talked about doing this podcast for ages. And, you know, in some way I'm thankful. You keep going overseas. Yeah. <laughs> but in some way I'm very thankful that we, that we left it because, you know, when we first talked about it, you know, we weren't at this stage. And, no. you know, for me, you know, having worked with, you know, you're much younger than me, but having worked with younger people and, and being someone who's like to see young people succeed and grow and develop, you know, for me to walk in here today and see what's happened and just cast my mind back to our very first conversations about doing this and doing my own clubs, um, it's really good and you should, and you know, I'm proud of you and you should be very proud of yourself for what you're, what you're achieving because... I, I don't think you'd be the only one and it's not your fault. I think there's a lot of people that, you know, I would have had something to do with their golf at some point yeah. and then to be here now, it's just like I, I don't think I saw it coming for most of the journey. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a massive achievement. Let's, you know, back to the States and mate, we're going to flick back and forth. That's yeah, just the way, that's the way yeah. that these stories happen. around. Going back to the States and being the guy in the dorm that, uh, you know, the, the college golfers who I imagine hadn't had that retail experience. You know, I think you were a little bit Yeah, I was older. a little bit older. Yeah. So it's an interesting part of the experience because it's pretty hard for an Australian to get into the American system at the same age because they're 17 and they're at the high, old high school is about going to college to play golf. So their recruiting structure is a lot different. So it took me a couple of years to get, you know, even a look in at some of the schools. And then when I, by the time I got there, I was two or three years older than most of them, four or five years older than some of them. So they didn't have any of that real world experience. And I suppose most teenage Americans haven't had jobs. Mm. It's a very different environment over there. So from a, a maturity standpoint, there was a bit of a gap. And that probably helped with the club making stuff because they respected me enough to let me work on their stuff. And I just, I got the, to work with some phenomenal players. Like I played golf on my team with some guys that are just, just unbelievable ball strikers and great players. So that helped. Did, did that exposure to the American market, and I can only imagine, and you can please tell me what it was, you know, really confirm to you that, you know, there is an opportunity for you to do this? You know, was it... I think it was still bits and pieces. Still bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah, it still wasn't like every person I ever met was like, that's great, I love it. Mm. There's a lot of people that were like, oh, yeah, well, I'm not really into it, but it's cool that it exists. Mm. Not everyone wants to personalise their clubs and own it. A lot of people are in the cycle of using yeah. this set till they get the next set and mm. not really thinking about other things. But there was enough people along the line that gave me enough pause to keep going. Okay. Right? Yeah. So let's come back to, you know, you, you finish playing college golf and then you come back to Melbourne. And, uh, and what happens then? I, did a, I went back to working retail. I went straight back to working with Corey. Mm -hmm. And we... So you're doing both? Yeah, I was doing both. Yeah. Um, so I've always worked a lot of days and yeah. not had a lot of time off. But I think when you're really passionate, it doesn't matter. Um, I was happy to do it. Tried to keep working with Corey as much as I could because I'm really passionate about the Legosi brand and what that can bring to the landscape. Um, did that for a few years. And basically, we get to this point where COVID hits. And I... 
had gone to work in a professional corporate job in a suit for a few years before that. And that really didn't sit well with me for where I would, my passion was lying, right? So I was, I was sitting at the day job working on the computer, looking at golf stuff, thinking, oh, I wish I, wish I was at the factory. Mm. Um, so that made me, I was pretty quick to get out of that. And then when Instagram and COVID came along together, all of a sudden it was just self-perpetuating, right? I, I couldn't stop. I kept getting more work, kept having more ideas about where I could take this, kept getting more work, kept having more ideas, and, and we end up here. Um, I got... I was pretty happy to get out of the, the jobs that I was working once this had evolved, right? Because once you can throw yourself into something 100%, there's just nothing like it from professionally. Uh, I can I can imagine. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, can't, I, can't. I, I can imagine what that must feel like. You know, I, I, you know, you know what I do and, you know, I'm my own boss, but, you know, it's in a different situation. You know, we've got a franchise model and, you know, there's there's a whole system built around that, which is super valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've but, got a support structure in Corey still. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, but but you know, you really are the master of your own destiny here, and and uh, you know that must be very empowering, especially you know to realise that you know having that moment where you know, you're sitting in a suit in a corporate job and realising that it's not for you, and making that decision because I think there'll be a number of people listening to this yeah. that are probably in corporate environments that uh, would... I think it was it was like a Hollywood movie. Yeah. Like I reckon I put the jacket on one day after work. I was walking home five o'clock. And I basically just made the decision within like 15 metres of taking a step out the door, just thinking, well, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore. So you like can, if I can do something else, I'm going to do it. So you can actually remember. Yeah, vividly. Yeah, yeah, it was a nice sunny day. I think it was like September, you know, just coming into spring. And I thought, am I really going to sit here any longer doing mm. this? When we couldn't, we couldn't get, we couldn't cope with the work we had at La Josie already. Mm. And there was already a bit of refinishing going on. And I thought, well, if I could do something with this, like that's a way better use of my time. There are plenty of guys that can work corporate jobs that don't have my passion or my desire to have the skill to do this. So I'm, you know, if it's not you, who, right? This is my job. Perfect, mate. Perfect. Well, yeah. let's go. Let's go back to some of the the golf clubs. The golden rams. Very nice toe box on those. Very nice toe box. So when you talk about toe box, you know, you're talking about that nice high toe. Yeah. Good square shape up yep. here. I mean, they don't make them that small very often anymore. No. Yeah, but that's a lot of meat behind the ball. That is, uh, there's a bit of mass in that. You know, that's like your classic early muscle back blade, you know, with that somewhat more modern shape. Yeah, you know, it's not too far away from, you know, what you see in no, a blade it's getting shape. There. I'd yeah. say that that must be mid 80s. Yeah, no, yeah. that's a sweet spot of, you know, my junior uh, golfing career. Um, you know, me being the retailer of brand new product, you know, I make a I make a living out of brand new product, and you know you being the polar you know, polar opposite, <laughs> the inverse. yeah, the inverse <laughs> of that, you know, like refinishing old product. And I'm here because I want old product refinished. I I personally believe that there is a very much a symbiotic relationship and not a competitive relationship between golf retail and then and what you're doing in your own retail space. You know, you're still golf retail, but just a different area. What do you see in terms of your clients? You know, are, are they, you know, nuffies like me that just want something old? <laughs> I wouldn't say nuffies. I'd say it's a really healthy mix. So okay. there's plenty of guys with new stuff that want repaint, referral, stamping. Yep. They're cool. Like to look after the cool new product, of which there is definitely some. Mm -hmm. And then the, the vintage guys that want restos, it's always, you know, your premium guy, the guy that's invested in something to start with, he wants to keep looking after it. Mm -hmm. And that's a really thrilling thing for me because I'm all about that, you know, rejuvenation, 
uh, impact on environment. We don't need any more new golf clubs. If we've got great cool golf clubs already, right, we can just fix those ones up. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty popular with my generation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I've, I don't know how old you are exactly, but, you know, I've got a, a son 31. 31. So my son's a few years younger than you, but, you know, I, I see that sort of mindset and uh, that, con- that care and concern come through in that generation. So you're much closer to his generation. So I, I get it. Um, you know, the, the new clubs versus the old clubs. Now, this is not a you know, new versus old or my one's better than the other, but... Yeah, I don't want to bring a knife to this gunfire. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but, you know, your passion for and belief that, you know, some of this restored gear can, can suit a player. Yeah, for sure. So I suppose if you're asking me the essence of the game is the fact that it's challenging, mm. right? So the golf clubs that used to be harder to hit doesn't make the game less enjoyable with the right attitude. But also there's some good vintage sticks that haven't changed that much from what your modern CB, your modern blade is. I mean, they've strengthened the lofts a lot and you can get lighter weight shafts now if you want to hit the ball further. But the essence of the game is still the difficulty and being consistent, you yourself hitting the golf ball. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter what clubs you use. For me, it's more about how much do you love the sticks that you're using? Because mm-hmm. if you're invested in your bag and your kit, that's how you become the best player you can be. And I've always thought it was easy to do that if your sticks were cool in the first place. <laughs> I love the whole if your sticks are cool. You know, like for some people that aren't traditional golfers, you know, like like you or like I, yeah. you know, that I think, yeah, there's a, there's a varying degree of what people's attitudes are around what makes sticks cool. Has to be subjective, yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, like when I stand here and look at all these, I don't know what that golf ball should be. Let's move that. Um, when I look at all of these uh, beautiful clubs, yeah, these are cool. What are you What are you doing with what we've got here? So most of them have been re- these have been rechromed. Yep, all these sets. You can see a set of copper MP thirty threes there. So they're re- they're relatively they're newish. Yeah, yeah I think MP3s. what are they? 03 to 03? 06. Yep. Um, I'm pretty sure that was in production for Mizuno for four or five years. So, so it's a very popular model. So just for the audio, the benefit of those listening, yeah, you know, I'm standing in the workshop, which is at the back of the uh, the, the retail frontage. You know, I've got a set of Mizuno MP33s, a set of Miura, what are they? M- TC201. TC201s. As we discussed, the Ram, Golden Ram tool grinds, and then some Mizuno MP5. MP5s. Yeah, going back a few years. All, all here with varying degrees of um, <laughs> you know, commencement and, and work. Needing some paint fill these Needing ones. some paint fill. Yeah. Um, so if we haven't already described it, you know, who's the avatar? What's the avatar of the of the client that comes in, you know, who is understanding of what having a cool set of clubs. It's actually, I think it's a really healthy mix. Yeah. Like I find it really hard to describe because I'm really happy. The thing that makes me most happy is the guys that are probably younger than me. Yeah. That means I'm appealing to the next generation of golfer who have got a handful of Scotties and they reckon having a cool set of Mizuno blades or Miura blades is really cool. Like even if they're not going to use those full time, just to own a set that they think is really cool is really, Mm -hmm. I love that. And then there's plenty of guys that are in there, you know, their 40s and their 50s that have had the set for a while and they just want to get that refinished. Why would I change my sticks? I like these ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there, there are guys that go looking for stuff for me to work on, which I love as well, right? Like collectors that say, like yourself, that oh, I really wanted a set of tour grams 30 years ago. I couldn't get the golden rams, but now I can have them. And, I, you know, for my cost of refinishing, they're not that expensive to buy. I can have a set of those sitting at home in the pool room or I could take them out on a Sunday night if I want to use a short set. Mm-hmm. All that, I mean, there's no such thing as bad passion for the game, right? Mm. Like, we all love the game. I want people to love the game as much as possible. So, if I can help that, that's awesome. It's, uh, 
it makes sense, you know, like there's plenty of people out there refinishing old cars, you know, that meant something to them and spending a way, a yeah. lot more money on for refinishing I'm, old cars. I think this year I've done a few jobs for guys that I would say are 75 plus. Yeah. That are just like, I've, I've had this set for 30 years. I can't use them anymore, yeah. but I just want to look at them and make sure they're good. Mm. And then they can go down the family when I'm gone. And that's awesome. There's a couple of things I want to touch on, you know, and you talked about the, uh, the environment. You talked about... You know, the dis- oh, we haven't talked about the distance of the ball. We'll talk about that. But, uh, you know, <laughs> like I, we'll just open this here, mate. <laughs> exactly. Well, i just come back from the Open at St Andrews, as you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I know you've got some thoughts around. Well, I have to, right, as that. Mr Mulligans. Yeah. I've obviously, I've got some opinions. Mm. Uh, so um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty big on bifurcation, mm-hmm. which is, that for those that don't know, it's a separate set of rules for the professional game and the amateur game. Mm. I think that I'm pretty big on the fact that the professional game has a, a fiduciary responsibility for the overall game. That's what people see on TV. That's where I started, right? I watched Jeff Ogilvy win a US Open. So I can't blame people for being inspired by the tour. It would just be great if the tour was inspiring at the moment. I suppose I, I watched that 150 <laughs> Open at St Andrews where they're knocking the ball on half of the par fours. And I, I'm thinking Alistair McKenzie's pretty unhappy about this to be honest. Mm. 360 yard par four is supposed to be two shots, right? How does the RNA watch that in their backyard and be happy about it? I think that they did have, you know, a legitimate concern that the score was going to be. It wasn't that low of scoring, yeah. I suppose. It was, it was a little windy in the first couple of days, you know, whatever. But yeah. I, think, I think they genuinely did have a bit of a concern that, you know, it was going to be torn a new one. And, yeah. you know, was, what was the final score? Minus 20? Minus, yeah. yeah, which is low. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it was very low. And it, all of that, you know, I saw those players hit those shots onto those greens and, you know, knock little wedges in everywhere else. So we've got Nick here, Nick Ward. Uh, it's a dynamic workshop. Uh, there's there's another part of Mulligan's upstairs and uh, yeah, Nick's doing some hitting up there and he's just checking a lie angle. And uh, that's, I assume, is that what you're doing, Nick? You're ch- checking a lie angle or, or doing a loft? Strengthen the loft on this one. Strengthen the loft? Yeah. So uh, obviously, anti Mulligan's approach. Who's listening at home? <laughs> <laughs> Doing a bit of distance gapping upstairs, and that's what we need to do. Okay, so strengthening loft at one end, and more traditional lofts at the other end. Um, We've got. But you've, s- you've seen that in modern. We're going to digress a little bit because you know next year we're not going to stop. Um, but um, yeah, you've seen that. Yeah, one of the differences between modern clubs and the clubs that we're refinishing and have talked about already laying in front of us mm-hmm. are the lofts. You know, clubs, yeah, clubs, modern tech. A couple, of, couple of big factors, right? So distance yep. and forgiveness are the, the massive buzzwords of modern golf. And I've read a few catalogues. I've read a lot of books on the subject from you know, the, the era before this. Mm-hmm. They didn't use those words a hell of a lot, to mm. be honest. They weren't the most popular words in golf 30 years ago, but they seem to be now. Um, hitting the ball further has become one of those things where everyone just thinks, well, it's going to make the game easier for me. I suppose to a degree it does, but consistency and uh, desire to get better are probably the things that help you the most in golf. So, yeah, look, the PGA Tour uh, has has created, I think they've created that environment by you know, making the game so stats-driven and, and talking about yeah. a lot of those metrics. Which, which brings us to live, right? Because... Well, well, let's <laughs> let's circle back to, to that if you want to. Um, <laughs> You know, I just did another episode last night and, you know, we talked about the live tournament that was on last week and, you know, you can't turn on a podcast at the moment that 
you know, has people commenting on, on the PGA Tour and competitive golf without hearing about it. So, you know, we can put your slant on that. But, sorry, Nick, um, just moving out of the way. So, yeah, so Nick's, once again, you know, we'll just talk through what Nick's doing here. So Nick has got the uh, bending bar. He's got uh, this club in a vice. He's got a Ventus blue shaft in it and he's strengthening the loft. So the bending bar is about a foot and a half long. It's got a brass tip on it. I use one of these every every day. Screws in at the end to um, clamp onto the hosel of the club. Uh, he's got it behind the club. He's got the club in the vice. How many, what are you doing, Nick? How many degrees? Uh, I'm trying to get two degrees out of it. So we're taking two degrees of loft out of this, what is it, a driving iron? It is, yeah, so it's one of the new types of models. Yep, so he's just taking a couple of degrees of loft so we can get the gap in the gentleman's bag right so for the distance that he hits the variety of clubs that are in his bag you know we want to get a certain distance gap between the club that sits behind this and then blend it into the club that sits in front of it probably a, a fairway wood maybe yeah so in between three wood and four iron is yep. what we're trying to hit so oh, bending bar on the toe um so generically you know this type of club would mallet on the hand um, this type of club is designed to, you know, launch high with low spin and uh, and go pretty straight because there's a lot of forgiveness built into it. So, you know, the, I think the launching high part can sometimes. It is phenomenally over-dissected, the driving iron, mm -hmm. I would say. Like, it's amazing how many good players, that's the club they obsess over the most. They've mm -hmm. got driver and three would are cool, irons are cool, wedges are cool, putters cool, but the driving iron, that 14th <laughs> club is the one they just can't get right super popular tweaking instrument i think it's it's hard to you know because there's so many options there's your hybrids your five woods your driving irons your ultimate wood yeah <laughs> <laughs> hey I, i've used i've used them all um and uh you know for me it's about getting getting something that suits your game and and suits what type of ball flight and you know of course you know your skill level being able to hit a club like that well versus a hybrid, there's so much going into club fitting. That's what I do every day, it's what you've spent a lot of time doing, it's what you do a lot of Nick, but, um, but anyway, um, thanks, Thank for, thanks, for, yeah, yeah. thanks for giving us a little interlude there of uh, bending. Um, you know, the vice is there, I don't know if you're watching the video, you can see the vice, you know, it's pretty. Yeah, I think uh, you did okay, you got there eventually. Don't, um, don't, bending golf clubs in a vice is a skill. Yeah, I'd say, <laughs> There's not too many things that you can do in a golf club workshop that don't become a skill over time. Mm. So even something like bending a loft lie, you can probably do it, someone explained it to you. But to do it properly, you're gonna have to do it a hundred times. You're gonna have to work out where it's gonna mark, where you wanna put the teeth on the club to get the best bend, how hard certain steels are versus others, how not to break shafts. Every little thing in a golf workshop is a skill. Uh, I do it in, in, in my store and uh how many guys do you trust in your store to do it? I've tried. Look, I've tried <laughs> to train them all, and there's a couple. Look, I'll well, well say so there's there are a couple that are now confident in doing it. Mm. Um, but really, you know, that understanding that symbiotic relationship between lie and loft, um, yeah, and, and it's just not as simple as just changing one because one has an effect on the other. And yeah, this is this is a really good point to come through. So not only is the refinishing and the mulligan stuff really important to me. But just general club making, mm. I just don't think it's it's discussed enough as an art form that it is, mm. right? Because if you if you care that much about your equipment and you put a lot of people put thousands of dollars into their stuff, right? The 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 actual specifics and the details of it, they're the bits you can get right really easily with good help. And there's a lot of people out there that build golf clubs that don't put the time and effort into it that they should. 
And that's, I think, really let down the game. You know, if, if someone is half involved in golf and they're using a poor set of golf clubs and they lose interest, that's a player we've lost to the game mm-hmm. for no other reason other than someone didn't put enough time into helping them. So I suppose I wanted to make it my mission to make sure that all the grips go on straight, all mm-hmm. the swing weights are good, yep. loft flies are always done correctly. Mm-hmm. We can be that kind of workshop that's got that higher standard. So loft and lies can go out of whack over time? Oh, yeah. Hitting, yeah. hitting balls off a mat, hitting yeah. balls uh, off a lot of turf if you're practicing a lot. Guys with bad tempers, you'll see that pretty often. Yep. Yeah, heaps of things. You, loft lies are something you should probably be checking at once every 12 months, yep. depending on how much you're playing. Ditto yep. for your grips. You might not need to replace them, but it's a good idea to have a look at them every 12 months. We get a lot of requests for people to change shafts and, and help people, you know, put a... Because shaft, you know, I, t- I use the term shaftology has become a bit of a, a buzzword. And, you know, back in my era, and I know you're a massive fan of Dynamic Gold, X100, S300, you know, that yeah. heavy, no, stiff yeah. shaft that's been around since I was a kid and oh. still is one of the... 70s or 60s, I reckon, is hey. the first true tempers. Oh, okay. I thought, you were say, I thought you were going to say me no, playing no, golf no, in no, the no, 60s. No, no, like, hey, whoa, whoa. I think we're talking about the 1970s for true temper X100. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, me, it was like mid-80s, uh, Dynamic Gold, S300, and it's probably still one of the biggest played shafts on tour. Yeah. Yeah, because it gives that desired flight. The shaftology people will say that's because it's just a familiar feeling. Mm -hmm. It's old. It's not really the best anymore, but people are familiar with it, so they want to keep using it. So, but what's happened around that, you know, like back when I was building clubs as a, you know, kid in a pro shop, um, that was all you had. Mm. And now, you know, that whole shaft market has exploded. You know, there's so many choices. And I think it confuses a lot of people. And I think the internet is has brought a whole new aspect into Hasn't it? how people think that they can improve their clubs and their swing dynamics and, yeah. and everything else by watching something on the internet, by watching someone talk about a shaft and what it does for them. And then all of a sudden they've got a set of those shafts and they're walking into me and I'm assuming you as well mm. saying, can you put these in these? And the process isn't just as easy as just getting the blowtorch or the heat gun out, ripping, ripping the head out of the shaft and putting a new set in because there's a lot more dynamics. Well, you, you could do it that way well, you if could. you wanted to. Yeah, 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 exactly. But what happens if you do that? Well, you probably, depending on how the heads have come, hmm. your balance point's really important. Yep. So swing weight. Yep. People change grip type. Yep. Grip, grip changes weight. Grip weight affects swing weight. Yep. So if you're rebuilding a golf club and you're not considering all of these individual components, you're probably not doing the best job possible. Hmm. And then you've got things like spine and frequency if you want to get really down into it, mm-hmm. where you can match the shaft flex through the whole set mm-hmm. and build it as good as you can. So if you're ignoring any of those little components, you're probably doing an injustice to the rebuild. It is pretty complicated. So spine aligning, frequency matching, um, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. My understanding there is, you know, a shaft, a steel, let's talk about steel shaft, you know, has a, has a connection point or a join. A weld line. A yeah. weld line, which obviously you can't see when it's in your golf club, but it's built with a weld line. Yeah. Um, and the theory about that is, is getting that weld line, which has maybe a slightly different mass to the rest of the shaft mm. pointing in the right direction it's usually a flat spot usually a so flat a golf shaft's not no no golf shaft is round yep even if it looks round, there's always a flat spot okay so it's about aligning those flat spots consistently through the set yep. doesn't mean it's going to make a massive difference but at least if it's consistently in the same spot in mm-hmm. your seven iron your five iron your mm-hmm. nine iron you're going to have consistency through the set and then frequency matching is kind of like tuning a guitar mm-hmm. they put it in a cpm machine it gives you a number on what the total flex of that shaft is 
and you can trim either end until you've got a set that flows from, you know, your, your top string to your bottom string and they're all in line and in tune. Yep. So there's just a couple of performance things you can add to your golf game if you haven't thought about it. That's the best way you can get the most out of those spining and frequency matching. That's but it's really, back to the point, it's really important, you know, and you've got, you know, these beautifully built uh, workbenches here where you've, you know, got some reclaimed pieces of furniture under there, you've got the drawers in there yeah. and they're very impressive, you know, you've got more brass <laughs> it's, it's, swing weights in there than I've ever seen in any workshop. It's a piece of artillery, the, uh, it the is. chest over there. It was probably, like, I, I did build all of the benches uh, by hand, I had a pretty specific idea of what I wanted for the workspace and we're not in a massive room, I mean, we're in a pretty vintage building so it had to be pretty smart the way that all the stuff fitted in here. Mm -hmm. um, but to get to reclaim the timber and that's like the thing that nobody else knows but I get to look at every day and think like, oh, I love those drawings. Yeah. Mate, they're, they're, be they're beautiful. But, but what impressed me is, you know, the, the detail the, yeah, that you've gone yeah. into inside there and the 50 sets of different colored ferrules. All of those BB and FCO ferrules, the brass swing weights. So, you know, what it's saying is, what I'm saying is when you drop off a set of Ram, golden Ram tool grinds down here and you get them rebuilt, yeah. you know, they're rebuilt to a specification that is going to suit either the origins of that club Hmm. Or the player? What? What do you? What would you? Oh, you'd know? ask the you'd ask the the customer. So if the customer wants to use them, I think we've always got to qualify what they're what they're after in a set. Mm -hmm. And that's, that goes for refinishing as well. If they're going to keep using something, you don't want to put fairly decorative details on their golf club, right? You want it to be an instrument they can actually use and play golf with. So you qualify that at the start. Generally, you're building it to a certain point, and then you're going specific for what the customer wants after that, because you wouldn't let something go, you know out the door that was too light or too heavy. So can you help someone here upstairs? You've got a, a simulator and as you expand the, the upstairs part of it, can you help someone you know, identify what might be right for them if they've got an old shaft in there? Yeah, that, that's what it's here for. Yeah. So I thought, I mean, it's not an essential part of what we do down here, mm -hmm. but to have a, a, an option for people to hit balls and we've got Trackman and GC Quad upstairs, yep. to have a facility where you can hit balls and get some data about what you're doing, I think that's helpful. And that way, if you want to put some MP33s in the bag that are nearly 20 years old now, you know, we can make sure that the performance of those is going to match whatever else you could get currently. Let's go back to the professional conversation that we're having before <laughs> yeah. about the, the, the pro golf. Um, yeah. You know, we were, we were, I think we got to the point where at St Andrews, you know, we're watching, you know, the Rory's, the Cam Smith's and the Bryson's and whoever else. I, I got to stand on the range mm. and, and see the, these guys hit these drivers and hit it good. it's... It's, an, it's another game. It's another world. Of course you expect that because they're professional golfers. They do it every day. But, mm. you know, these balls are going unbelievable distances. They are. How does, how do we, you know, bifurcation, we talk about that. How, oh. do, how do we, how, do, how does, you know, you're, you and I are the commissioner of the. Yeah, I'm pretty hard line. Golf. So I've got a theory. What's the theory? The theory is if you look at just about any other sport, any other game in the world, mm. right? When, the, when that technology linchpin has been optional, they've gone away from it. So that in baseball, they had alloy bats and they said, oh, they're going way too far in the professional game. We'll have to stick with the solid wood bats because mm -hmm. we're not going to make the field 600 feet. We've got to keep it at 400 feet. We can't afford to make it too big. And I'm sure they could put nitro in an AFL ball and they could kick it 80 meters, right? If they wanted to, and they'd have to make the field bigger. 
So you can see where I'm going here. The golf courses are just gonna to have to keep getting bigger and bigger if they hit the ball further. And no one really wants that, do they? Like no one wants 500 yard par fours as standard. They don't, the maintenance is not great. Green keepers will hate it. Land developers, it's not a great use of the space. Um, so the idea of the golf ball just going endlessly further is pretty silly. Um, my theory is that the pro game should be limited to only solid golf clubs, no hollow golf clubs. Okay, so you would yeah. you would bifurcate the club technology, yeah, and not the ball and, and the ball technology. I think we've got to do a little bit of ball, right? But I think the club. I think there was a fear looking at the old wooden persimmon driver and mm. the old wooden three wood. So mm -hmm. that's why we had to have one irons and two irons because guys would stand over the persimmon driver and go, "Geez, this is tough to hit. There's water up there and there's a bunker there and." There's a fear associated with the hardest club in the bag to hit. Mm -hmm. And now at 460cc with a 60 gram graphite, it's the easiest club to hit. Yeah. Most people think, oh, I've got to hit driver because every other club in the bag is too small. Mm. And that has completely changed the way that golf was supposed to be thought about. You're yeah. supposed to be afraid of the hardest club to hit and it's not supposed to be the easiest club in the bag to hit the furthest. Look, we're not talking about anything that hasn't been talked about at a greater scale. And, and you know, this isn't going to change the landscape of the game. But That's when Adam Scott is... When Adam Scott talks about it, mm -hmm. you know, and his advantage as a premium ball striker hitting the center of whatever driver he puts in his hand pretty much religiously. Yeah. And and then to see some of the, the young athletes who don't hit the center of the club face as much as him. Isn't it? Yeah. Getting more yardage than him because you know they're probably 20 years younger, probably spend a little bit more time in the gym. But it takes away the skill of yeah. Adam Scott, who's probably, you know, transcended. You know, previous times, you know, maybe Adam learnt with a persimmon driver. I don't, I don't know. He definitely did. Yeah. He definitely did. Yeah. yeah. He, he's learnt that, but now he's still elite at that level. Takes away the skill of what he's able to do in hitting yeah. a fairway. This is, this is the start of my journey questioning stuff, right? Is mm. the uh, 2009 PGA mm -hmm. when Wei Yang beat Tiger Woods with watching, a bag full of hybrids? I remember watching it. Yeah. That was probably the first time I sat there and thought, hang on a minute. Did, so you can remember that <laughs> yeah. sitting there going. 18 year old Adam looking at it going, hmm. I'm not sure that the clearly the more athletic, the more talented guy, the more, and he's coping with the pressure. I mean, he's hitting a blade three iron, yeah. and Wei Yang's hitting a you know a five wood, seven wood bloody. Yeah, there's something going on here because guys on tour, and I've heard Jeff Ogilvie talk about this. Mm. The big difference was 20, 30 years ago, the middle of the pack couldn't hit the 225 yard shot because yeah. they had to hit it; it'd go along the ground, or they couldn't hit it consistently. And now everyone on tour can carry it 225, floating it up in the air and stopping it. So the advantage of the premium ball strike has been whittled away now. And that means that the guys that hit it long have to be really good short game players. And that used to be where you got the advantage. Mm -hmm. If you weren't a premium ball striker, you could just work on your short game and that's where you'd beat guys. But now it's all hickledy pickledy, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, very much, I know I've said this before on a podcast, Many times, uh, bifurcation for me, I'd be a fan of. I'd, I'd probably look at the ball first. You know, I, I would probably, you know, having played a ballata as a- Do you like my point about the driver fear? Oh, 100%. No, yeah. it, it makes, it is 100% absolutely on point and relevant, absolutely. Um, the ball's easier to do. The ball's, yeah. I think the ball's an easy, easier win for, for you know, the, the authorities to mandate and also for the manufacturers to do. Mm. Um, you know, having played with a bladder, and, and I think many people that probably listen to this maybe have, or, but mostly haven't experienced a bladder and, and what that does. Now, what it does off the old clubs is even more exacerbated. If you've got an old bladder now and you hit it, like it's probably out of date, but 
Yeah, we've got a few dozen in the shop, mate. A few dozen in the shop. What else would we have at Mulligan? Exactly. Um, <laughs> once again, collectibles. You know, it's, it's crazy to think that people go out and seek old boxes of uh, Titleist Pilates. Is that crazy? No, it's not crazy. No, so it's not MGBs crazy. MGBs and Jags yeah. and people yeah, collect all no. kinds of stuff. No, it, no, well, okay, rephrase that. It's not crazy, <laughs> but, you know, at the time for me, sitting there looking at them, I wouldn't have thought that anything ever would happen. Back in the day. Back in the day. Yeah. But anyway, if you haven't hit a blighter, it's a different experience. The ball travels differently, it spins differently, it feels different, and it just reacts different through the atmosphere. And it was a skill to be able to hit a good shot with a blighter, yeah. um, especially in wind, especially in different course conditions. And you know, I think putting a control ball, now you, you referenced other sports, you know, I come from a car background, and I've said this again before, Formula One, if something's not working for them, they change the formula mm. to make the product better for the sport, so the sport's more competitive, therefore more interesting to the people. And we, we, don't, seem, we, we don't seem to be able to have this more competitive part, you know, this quite- Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So it just makes me think about the governing body, right? Because golf is a game where the uh, equipment manufacturers have an enormous amount of power on the direction of the game, which is not a bad thing. And I don't think bifurcation hurts retail or equipment manufacturing. It's going to no. make people think about things in a different way. It should be good for everybody. But in F1, the manufacturers have not much power with the F1 board, as far as I know. Maybe Mercedes and Ferrari are pretty big, but they think, kind of all have to fall in line. I think there's a bit of influence, but what I think what they do do is they bring that leading technology to the sport, which you know, at some point filters down into you know, what everyone drives. You know, the, the evolution of the electric car and, um, and power regeneration in cars and, and motors, you know, that started years ago in somewhere One. in Formula One. Yeah, with the brain. And so, you know, there is a link to the development cycle of product that comes out of that sport. But at the end of the day, it's a sport and there's money and there's, you know, TV and there's people watching it. Mm. They have to have a good sport. They have to have a sport that people want. Now, we're in an era now when we talked about live and I'm pretty sure that part of this whole live and PGA Tour thing. It's dissatisfaction. It's some level of disruption and dissatisfaction with the view, the, the people yeah. who pay for it. And that's you and me as consumers and consumers of the, 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 the content on yeah. TV. I'm the, I'm, I'm the poster boy. I mean, I've really struggled to watch. I've really struggled to watch PGA Tour events for definitely the last few years. I still watch the majors and I watch the bigger events, but I struggle to watch PGA Tour events week in and week out. And the, the big argument I've heard with the live golf stuff is the, the 72 hole stroke play mandate to make it a golf tournament. I find that fascinating because if you just pick up a couple of history books, I'm pretty sure most of the majors didn't used to be 72 hole stroke play, right? That's sort of a, a modern PGA Tour take. How many, how many majors did Bobby Jones win over 72 hole stroke play? Well, you know, you know the answer. I, I don't yeah. know the exa answer exactly, but none. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not really sure uh, that doesn't sit well with me, that argument. And I think that, you know, the reason it's going to, if, if Liv is going to take off and do well, it's because there was probably a, a demand for something other than what we were already getting in the PGA Tour. I'm not saying bifurcation is the answer, but for me, that would have been something that probably played a role in my passion for the, the tour events. Yeah, well, there's obviously more to it. And I don't think, unfortunately, 
you know, you or I, this podcast no, is going to solve it. We're but, not going to get the answer here. But I, I, I definitely think that um, we're not the only ones. So we've got Ho- we've woken up Hogan the dog now, mate. Hogan. Yeah, he was very well behaved until this point. But uh, I don't think you or I are going to solve uh, the whole bifurcation discussion. But you know, it's relevant to the landscape and and golf and, and what we do. Um, I can tell you that having my own shop and thinking about. I mean, I've, I've been asked about what the next steps would be and I've told a few people, like, this was the grand final, you know, I've, I've already played it. I'm mm-hmm. not looking for anything more. But if I could somehow keep influencing the way people think about golf, so maybe if that's just a little bit of what I can do, then I'll, that's something, right? I don't have to change the rules of golf, but if people start to think about it in a different way, that's something. Oh, very powerful, mate. I, I totally believe <laughs> that. Confucius over here. No, but... <laughs> You know, you, you've, you've crafted a space of influence there, you know, just by the fact that, you know, people keep sending you this type of gear. And we haven't talked about the putters over there. Mm. You know, there's... Scotty Cameron's unbelievable, unbelievable amount of golf equipment over there that, you know, it's very highly desirable refurbished golf golf clubs, the Scotty yeah. Cameron putters, Terrilliums. Oh, jeez. The amount of people that can't believe that I don't own any of those. No, they're all customers. <laughs> yeah. But to the point is... You know, you've crafted a space where people seek your knowledge and experience. And if you keep doing that, it's going to influence the landscape. I'm optimistic, but it's, 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 it's not. not, we're not we might not change it, but you know what? The voices of um, helping people understand what all of this means and what it does. And then, you know, the driving force, we just talked about Formula One, um, but the driving force of the game at the elite level, if it can change and be a better product, that's a good thing. Yeah, I'd love that. Talk about this terrilliums. <laughs> I do. I do plenty of terrillium uh, Scotty Cameron refurbs. Where are these all from? Uh, they're they're all from people across Australia. So mm-hmm. a couple of Queenslanders, a couple of from South Australia. Plenty in New South Wales with my sister shop up in Angus and Grace Go Golfing, Paddington, Sydney. Uh, there's a couple of pieces there from them. So they're sort of you know a three or four hour work proposition each of. Uh, dismantling, unpainting, polishing, refinishing, putting the little silicon dots back in the back, making sure the insert fits properly because they're all put together a little bit differently. Um, a labor of love on those things. I've seen the way that some of these are presented to you. Yeah. You know, you fa- had anything come to you like found in a tree that was covered in rust, almost rusted away. Yeah, they, man, heaps of those guys will be like, oh, I found this in a bin, mm. just brown, just like, oh yeah. See what I can do. Do you ever get the, I found it an op shop for five bucks and it's a Yeah, there's a few of those. Oh, and I'm always thinking, geez, I wish I went to that op shop. Yeah. Tell you, if I could get a studio style for 50 bucks, I'd be I, there. I've never, my mate Mike Ferroni down at Mornington, he, speaking of these clubs, uh, he is the classic, I found the set of clubs online, bought them for 20 bucks yeah. off someone that didn't understand the value of them. I'm not that guy. If I get some time, I'd, I'd sift through that kind of stuff. But at the moment, it's just about looking after people that are doing it for me. So we'll keep working. But the putters is, it's probably where Mulligan's got started, I suppose, mm. is refinishing putters and um, just putting life back into the old Scotty Camerons. There are plenty of really good models of Scotty and Bettinardi and Ping through the years that I think putting is probably the, it's the one aspect that people, that even if they're in the cycle of new golf clubs, they're not necessarily really wanting a new putter all the time. They can keep using the old one. That's the one stick that people aren't craving technology on all the time. Uh, so that's probably where it all it all got started. Well, I've dropped a putter off there for you to do. What are we gonna do with my putter? Uh, it's a 
probably not put the black back on it. Okay. We could weld the sole up on that thing. I think it's got some pretty I like it. interesting engraving. I'm liking that. Okay. Just to really customize it. Well, mate, sky's the limit. If you're happy to do it, uh, sky yeah. is the limit. We've got nine or ten finishing options at Mulligan's, mate. Well, okay. I'll show you. A, I'll show you a menu before you head out. We'll we are going. I'm. I'm. I'm happy to leave it with you. Like I'm happy for you to be the, the craftsman. In the I don't. Zone. I don't like the stress when people say, oh, "I'll just leave it with you." Was there a problem with the last wedges? No, no, no obviously exactly they were not. good. It's good for you, but when there's 50 different customers yeah. that say, I'll trust you, that's too hard. So I'm going to leave you with some wedges and I'm going to leave you with the putter um, and we're going to turn that into a little project. We might follow the journey and, yeah, we'll and just to, to give the people who we talk to a little bit more of an insight into the evolution. We might take some photos, but oh, yeah, we're not going to give away the secret source of how we stamp and... You know, this beautiful workshop, you know, there's grinding belts out there. You've got all talking of... about any of that stuff with anybody that comes into the shop. We might work on, I might, we might work on a little bit of uh, custom lie, uh, not lie, um, bounce. We might, can we change the bounce on yeah, the wedges? Yeah, of course, yeah. Can we put a little bit of trailing edge relief? Okay. Are you playing of... open face shots? Yeah, yeah. A little okay. bit of leading edge relief because I get a little bit grabby in the in the cooch. Sounds good. Very tiger-esque, mate. High bounce yeah, up the, front, low bounce at the back. That's exactly what I want. Yeah. If we, can we do that? Yeah, that's how all the good players are using them, mate. Oh, thank you very much. Me and you, tiger. <laughs> Big um, Very good. Okay. What's next for Mulligans? Uh, so we've really got to get our feet in the ground in the shop. I mean, we opened uh, July 14th for the Open, mm -hmm. just so I could remember the anniversary every year. That'd be pretty straightforward. Um, I think we'll try and get to the end of the year. I've, I'm not taking too many orders on at the moment because we're trying to get rid of the backlog that we've got. Um, hopefully by the end of the year we finish that out. And then there's still, a, we've got a beautiful staff room upstairs that needs developing. And then I'd love to think we could have some sort of events here. It's a really good building and a good space. We had an opening night that went really well. So to get to gather the, the cohort of golfing passionate people once a year or something would be great if we could work towards that. We've got a couple of working fireplaces upstairs, which are beautiful in the winter time. I, I think you could uh, entertain, you know, your clients and you know their friends and and other uh, associated people yeah. more often than once or twice a year. That's uh, one aspect of it, and I think uh, I do my own hand grinding of yep. the Japanese blanks that I source. Yep. So you know, I'm selling a few of those to to various customers at the moment, but to to encourage people to keep thinking about the way that those are made. So even if you're not gonna go with a full hand ground set, but if you're using a set of irons and you think, oh, maybe if I could, a bit of a different bounce on this, or like you've just asked about your wedges. If we could just get guys thinking about that, that that's what I really want the shop to be. So you've got a foundry in Japan that makes blanks. You bring the blanks across, you can tweak those. Yeah, um, any, any shape you yeah, want. Yeah. So you can say, I want no bounce. I want a really square toe. I want really thin Ricky Fowler style top line. You can do anything you want to the blank. It's heavy enough that you can really do whatever you want shape wise. So it's not branded. So you can, you put Mulligan, you've got a Mulligan's brand. Yeah, a little yeah. club maker's mark, yeah. which is the, the icon that everyone will, yeah. will see. It's associated with Mulligan's. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll roll with that. It was a, a real labor of love to get the branding and the modeling spot on. I think we've done okay. Full set or half set? What would you? What would most ah, people? So like I've got what I've done with my set mm. is I've got so you got three to pitching wedge in the blanks, eight pieces. So I weakened the three iron to sort of old fashioned twenty two, maybe that's current four iron loft probably, and the wedge I weakened to about fifty, mm. and then I drop the seven iron from the set and I just play like six degree loft gaps. Yeah. So it's effectively four to pitch. Yeah but it's really like three to gap in the modern standard. So I can carry 12 pieces without missing any gaps. 
I love it. I just played New South Wales last week for the first time. Yeah. And uh, took a half set up there. Isn't it, I think that's one of my favourites up there, New South Wales. Yeah, it was probably one of the best courses, love it. you know, a handful of courses in Australia, but played it with a half set. Yeah. My playing partner said, why did you bring a half set? And I said, oh, well, I just wanted to try something different. I was more, you know, as concerned about the weight carrying. I've been carrying golf clubs around for a while. I said, I'll just take a half set. Hmm. And it was really cool. I think it's super enjoyable yeah. way to play golf. And I mean... Most of the, the heritage golf aspects, the, the idea of a 14-piece set doesn't come around until the 1950s. So there's hundreds of years of golf before that where people weren't carrying full sets of sticks. And it is, I mean, if the ball didn't go so far, it'd be easier to carry a half set, right? But that's another conversation. I think you can get plenty of enjoyment out of not having 14 clubs. You mm. play more shots. And at the end of the day, that's the essence of the game, right? The challenge of hitting cuts and draws and low ones and high ones and using everything in your bag to the fullest of its ability. Yeah. I think uh, if people can't play those shots, you know, that's one of their goals. So it's it's uh, it's a good thing to have that as your goal to try and, and maybe try playing with a half set. Yeah. I'd like to think we, could, we can push that as well. Mm. Yeah. Just different ways of thinking about this great game. And is there anything else we need to know about Mulligans before we, you know, we've, we've been on a journey. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty, pretty comprehensive. We're we've, sort of, we've, we've that's told, a good summary of everything we do. Yeah. yeah. Opening hours are pretty limited if you want to walk in off the street. We're Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Mm-hmm. But that's because it's still a workshop and I've, I've got work to do with my guys. So if you want to stop in on another day, we're usually here. Just give us a call or knock on the door. But otherwise... Instagram, Facebook, that's yeah. a website. At Mulligans Club Makers, mm-hmm. mulligansclubmakers.com.au. Uh, let me know if I can do anything for you to help you with your golf game. Uh, Adam, I'm going to hand over my clubs to you, put them in your trusty possession. Yeah. We're going to follow the journey. Thanks very much because, as we said right at the start, you know we've been talking about doing this and uh, we put it off to you in the store and you know we could see and show people what it's all about, what that, yeah. what that craftsmanship looks like and feels like. And uh, mate, you've done a, a sensational I'm job. I'm really glad I could share it. Thanks, mate.